Welcome to the pod, everyone. A shout out to SGS. Hey, Rusty, why are we uh, partnering with SGS? Uh, uh, some, some, some good people there. Pretty excited about their sports coaching courses and sports courses. Keen to make them industry ready so when people leave, they're able to go and transfer it to any kind of industries, coaching, teaching, being an analyst, business, whatever it might be. So I think, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty exciting times, really. So what's so special about their degree courses that others won't be doing? I think it'll be lots of uh, real good partnerships, uh, opportunities for people to, to get into different contexts and learn and practice. It'll be feel very applied. People will be stretched and supported and will leave you know, ready to just go and thrive in the uh, big old world out there. SGS College is the home of Bristol's higher education sports programmes. The programmes are designed to develop unique, innovative and creative sports practitioners ready for industry. Do you want to be a coach or teacher of the future? Start your journey here at SGS College and become more than just a graduate. Visit sgscol.ac.uk to apply now. Welcome to the pod everyone. Bit of a, a shout out to SGS who uh Myself and Fletcher are going to do a little bit of work with, um, hopefully make it the uh, most uh, innovative, uh, impactful, effective coaching qualification in the country, industry ready, um, experiential, backed up with all the science and the evidence stuff. Um, And just a brief word from them beforehand. SGS College is the home of Bristol's higher education sports programmes. The programmes are designed to develop unique, innovative and creative sports practitioners ready for industry. Do you want to be a coach or teacher of the future? Start your journey here at SGS College and become more than just a graduate. Visit sgscol.ac.uk to apply now. Cool. Uh, Live on the pod, Topsy Ojo, Dan Fujiwara. Uh, How are you guys? You well? Yeah, very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good. Thanks, Rusty. Cool, good. And Topsy, John Fisher's excited to uh, to have you on. Uh, do, you yeah. guys wanna, do you guys want to just give a kind of a brief synopsis of what, what meant that you're on a Zoom with me today? What got you to this point in your lives? Uh, well, I guess I'll dive in. Um, 16 years Irish, retired last summer, now trying to figure out next chapters. A lot of coaching. Uh, a lot of mentoring, some work in the media as well. Uh, not so much the last couple of months <laughs> with nothing to commentate on, but um, I'd say up until March, really good transition, uh, doing a lot of things that I really enjoy. So that's that's been really good. Nice. And Dan? Yeah, so um, my my background is in, in well-being and research. So background in academia, um, did a PhD in well-being science. Um, and, and from that, you know, has kind of, brought that into my work area so we do a lot of work um, around measuring well-being of, of um, employees of staff of customers etc um, and I'm currently doing that through a, through a company that I run called Symmetrica Jacobs um, and recently we've been getting really heavily into sport and how we might be able to apply those kind of thoughts around well-being and performance um, within the sporting domain and thinking about athletes and whether we can improve performance um, in that respect, so just just starting on that journey um, and transitioning our research into that area, but um, you know, really excited to see where that can go. And we've we've just started working with Harlequins on that. Nice, awesome, and fellow economist. So ticking ticking you a good box for me there. Well yeah. done, uh, Topsy. Actually, I mean, just saying that is incredible. Sixteen years at London Irish, one club man, 
uh, those type of days are gone. What were the, tell me about your highlights. What were the best moments at Irish? Oh, wow. Um, all right, Whistle Stop Tour. Well, it's obviously debut, uh, 2005, scoring in my first game. Um, 2008, Heineken Cup semi-final, Twickenham, good occasions. See, playing twice for England as well, down in New Zealand against the All Blacks, scoring on debut as well. A um, couple of individual awards along the way, um, captain in the club, uh, suffering relegation, getting the club promoted twice, see up and down, but still highlights to get promoted. And I guess finishing with a couple of records in hand as well, most appearances, most tries, and I guess going out on my terms, like on the pitch at Reading, kids, wife, trophy in hand, job done, 16 years. Um, I guess now I think about it and describe that kind of fairy tale stuff, I would say. Um, but yeah, brilliant. Obviously, all careers have their ups and downs, but thoroughly enjoyed mine. Nice. And actually, uh, and, and you wouldn't know, but I speak to lots of young players at Irish and you would be uh, significant in their development as well. So the Ollie Hanford Collins, the Ben Loaders, the Tom Partons of this world are, are, are learning some stuff from you as well, which is also pretty cool. Very nice to hear. Thank you. Appreciate it. No, it's cool. I'm going to come to Dan in a second, actually, to ask him a bit about, and, and really, the guess what I'm keen for us to ex explore is that well-being and, and what it was like for you as a player and potentially a little bit of what it was like for me, but, and then use Dan's expertise to maybe make some sense of it and, and, and what for the future. I'm going to ask you, though, first, Topsy, because Dan will have a really good definition of well-being. Mm -hmm. I'm curious as to what you think it is. Uh, for me, I mean, we did try and use it in brief periods through my, my time at Irish. I guess ultimately it comes down to how you are, how you're feeling, you know, are you, are you sleeping okay? How, how are you feeling in terms of being able to come into training and work? That would be my, my, my base description of it. Nice, Dan. How's he doing? What, what grade are you giving him for that? Uh, that's pretty good, I'd say. Eight out of ten, something like that. Oh, <laughs> Stop the pod there. <laughs> what, uh, what, how would you describe it or define it, Dan? So, there's, there's a, you know, there's multiple ways that we can look at well-being. Um, and Topsy kind of highlighted one of them, which I'll come to in a minute. But you know, one fairly common way is for people to kind of like look at what you've done or what you've got in life so your wealth your health your level of education how many friends you've got all of that kind of stuff might be indications of how 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 good your quality of life is um but the work that i predominantly do is around people's self-assessment so we ask people how they feel which is exactly kind of what topsy was talking about how they're feeling um you know we might ask them questions about sleep um, but we predominantly ask them about their mood so how they're feeling you know on a moment's moment basis we also ask questions kind of known as evaluative questions, which ask them to evaluate um, their life as a whole. So it might be evaluated against their goals or, you know, how, how um, against their peers and co-workers and stuff like that. Um, and then the third side of it is looking at how much purpose they have in their life, how much, how much, you know, how worthwhile are the activities that they do. So we're covering both the pleasure and the purpose aspect. So all of that together, you know, those kind of three pillars would give you a, a sense of well-being. And it's, and it's common, I think, nowadays to, to ask that, in, you know, individually of people and, and for them to rate it. So they might be rating on a scale of zero to 10 or something like that. 
as you said the word purpose, I'd just written it down because it was the thing that I I was trying to, my question to you was going to be, well, what do you notice as significant impact on people's well-being, both kind of in a positive direction and perhaps in a in a negative direction as well? What's uh, And I'm guessing purpose is, would be pretty high up there. Yeah, so I mean, there's there's loads here and, and it actually depends on which measure you take. So an interesting one, for example, in a study a while ago was if you look at kind of people's moods, actually being at work is not great. So if we look at things like anxiety, stress, happiness, uh, people are better off not being at work. Um, you know, they're happier outside of work. But if we look at their overall evaluation of life, so how happy do you feel or how satisfied are you with your life? Um, work is one of the biggest drivers. Um, so you, you get these kind of differences depending on what metrics you look at. But, you know, the, the things that kind of really shine through, regardless of what kind of metric you look at, are things like social relationships, good quality job, good quality housing, um, uh, family um, environment. So even, you know, pollution and, and kind of sunshine and all of that kind of stuff is really important. Um, and then we, we also get kind of a much more of the, if you're looking at the day-to-day -day type of stuff, um, you know, sports, cultural, uh, arts participation, hobbies, um, cooking, actually listening to podcasts. We've even got some data on that. That's pretty good for your well-being. It's about three times better than uh, mucking around on kind of social media, Twitter and stuff like that. So, you know, hopefully your listeners are, are getting a well-being kick out of it. Um, playing with your kids and pets. Those, those are another kind of really big drivers. Um, kind of intimacy is a big one um alcohol drinking in kind of appropriate amounts is another really big one and then i think kind of relevant to what we're talking about sport so whether that's doing sport and that has a really big impact on your well-being but also watching sport um has a has a really big impact as well nice i'm definitely missing watching sport and just just the rugby coming back in new zealand to be honest give me a bit of a boost um what topsy what do you think when dan lists all that stuff what's kind of resonating with you what's making you go ah yeah of course i should have been drinking more alcohol and listening to more podcasts <laughs> yeah those last two i mean it it's actually really interesting you know because like you say you, you i think rugby players are quite good at kind of compartmentalizing and that's the that is the right word isn't it yeah and i think when they come into a club especially in a training week they tend to leave everything at the door they come in and sometimes that can be their happy place it's like right okay i'm at training i'm with the boys whatever's been going on i can actually leave it behind and almost try not to deal with it but i guess as you were saying it, it's almost like actually is that the best way of doing it you know it's, it's okay being able to kind of separate yourself from baggage but actually if you don't deal with it eventually it's going to manifest itself in some way so maybe it's a strength and a weakness in terms of being able to say, right, okay, I'm leaving that there. I'm here to train. I'm here to work. I'm with the boys. You know, I can be happy. I can have a laugh and not think about my life outside of rugby. But then obviously as soon as the training day's finished, it comes flooding back again. So I guess maybe there is a question in there, you know, how, how do you deal with that? Yeah. Well, what do you mean by leave, leave everything at the door? You mean kind of the, the problems of. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, because, I mean, even on games, you know, I mean, like, you know, we're talking about well-being and how it will affect performance. You know, I mean, I would imagine a lot of guys, they have so many things going on. But once it comes to training or game day, they're like, right, I'm not even thinking about that. I can park it because rugby is kind of my distraction. 
and I can use it to actually make me feel good about myself, of course, but forget about my problems for a day or for an hour and a half that they're there. But is that actually the best way of proceeding? It's, a, I guess it's a strength in terms of being able to switch on and switch off, but in the long run, is that healthy? Yeah. So we, we find, you know, there's a lot um, in, in our kind of study of, you know, general workplaces, kind of office, office workplaces, that kind of thing, kind of openness with colleagues and your line manager and management teams and being able to kind of discuss things that are work related, but also non work related is, is a really important driver of well-being and performance. Um, and that might be the issue as well in sport, although there's, there are probably some barriers there in terms of it's, um, you know, that there are slightly different cultures, I think, at work compared, you know, in a sporting environment than there is in a, in a regular workplace. Um, what are you thinking that's different, Dan, in a sporting environment? It, it just, it feels, I think you, you have to maybe have a bit of a, more of a persona. I mean, I, I played a lot of sport when I was younger and, and into my university years, and it was kind of, you're, as a bloke, I think you're a bit more expected not to really talk about those kind of things, and there's not that open kind of space to do that whereas I think you know in in my general work life over the past 15 years or so there are you know health and well-being programs managers are open to listening to those kind of issues um, and I've never spoken to you know any of my coaches when I was playing football and stuff like that and cricket when I was younger never never had that opportunity they'd ever asked about you know how, how, the, how I was feeling although you know my teachers and, and managers in my later life did do that so it, it feels like it's just a, maybe a cultural thing in my eyes but what do you what do you what do you think in Topsy? Because I, I mean, I there, there are some barriers. So things like selection, I hear lots of coaches say, "Oh, there has to be a line." I, I, I'm not quite sure what that means, by the way. Um, but actually, and also the kind of male environment, you don't show weakness because I might not get picked, or they might think this. I mean, what are your? I mean, 16 years Topsy, how many how many conversations that Dan's talking about and let's call them well-being programs as well, have you kind of, how many of those have, have come into your life? Not too many, I would say. I mean, we, for a period now, we did, I mean, I think we called them wellness surveys. So every morning you would fill in how many hours you've slept, how did you sleep, uh, how are you feeling, and it would get fed in. And sometimes there would be feedback, sometimes they wouldn't. And I guess it's, you know, knowing how seriously is that side of things taken? Is it a nope, you're here now, you know, this is a male dominated environment, we're rugby, we're here to work hard, we're here to show that we're strong. So it's actually resilience and you being able to say, right, okay, yeah, I've had a bad night's sleep, but actually, you know, I can still get on with the job, I can still perform well, and I can still train well, because I want to get selected. It's a Tuesday, it's our big day. And if I don't train well today, I'm not going to get picked. So there's a lot of that. I would say, again, that, that that's probably the environment as well. I think it's you're competing every single day and you probably don't want to show any kind of weakness, any chinks in your armor, because as much as you're around friends and colleagues and as boys, you get on so well, ultimately you're competing for 15 starting spots and a couple bench spots. So that's probably the ultimate driver of how well you are the more you're playing the happier you are you know things seem a whole lot easier so i guess ultimately that's that's the focus and i would imagine a lot of boys myself included i would say you don't want anything to detract from your ability to train well to play well at the weekends 
Nice. What um what were the what were the players saying about the wellness surveys when they were when they were filling them in? I'll give you a um I spoke to someone recently who plays international sport and he said he tried it for one week where he just filled out zero and to see if anyone kind of got in touch with him and no one did. Um so I guess that's always the I wonder if the players are thinking that type of stuff. But what Yeah, that, that that's that's exactly it. I I would I mean Sometimes, you know, someone would say, oh, you, you filled in all zeros. Is everything okay? And it would actually be just seeing to check if actually was anybody, use, if anyone was actually using this or is it just, are we just ticking a box to say, right, it's been done. Is this actually something meaningful that the coaching staff, the hierarchy are going to use to say, right, okay, actually something's going on here. We need to investigate it further. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough. I think, you know, maybe Dan will lean on this. You know, if you've got 40 to 50 guys doing this every single morning, how do you manage that as well as then getting them through training program, food, tactics, meetings, and then the session review, preview? Um, do you allow time for that? But I mean, yeah, definitely a lot of guys would have been like, oh, I've either not filled it in because nobody looks at it or for a week yeah exactly what you said i'm just going to put in all zeros or put in the most random scores like i've had zero zero hours sleep but i'm a 10 just start <laughs> messing with the system just to see if anybody would actually flag it and say all right maybe we should look at this nice what are you what are you doing to combat that dan what's the i guess one of my things is well, what type of questions are you asking and 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 why so, uh, yeah, we, we've developed a system called PCS, which stands for Performance Care Science. So we look at the performance element, the care element is kind of measuring well-being because it's important to do that anyway. And then the, the S is kind of the science, which is a lot of kind of scientific rigor around how we collect the data. Um, and within the PCS system, we have um, two phases of questions. We have a baseline survey, which is about 10 to 15 minutes. And all of the players would take that. That would give us their baseline well-being scores. And it gives us a bit of a diagnosis around um, how, how resilient they might be to, to setbacks during the season, that kind of thing. Um, and then from there, we, we typically have questions that take about 60 seconds, 50 to 60 seconds to complete. Um, and they can be done by email. They can be done by app and things like that. So we'd be asking the players to do that every morning alongside their kind of wellness questions. Um, and we'd ask, we'd be asking them things like, how happy do you feel right now? Um, how anxious do you feel right now? Those types of questions, um, again, on a sliding scale of kind of zero to 10. Um, for us, it's ideal if we can get that data daily because we can then match it into the performance data. But um, it's not such a bad thing if we only get that three times a week or once a week or something like that, as long as it gives us a bit of a, you know, um, a, a landscape in terms of how they're doing. Um, and our key thing is that, you know, the rationale for players or staff and employees to do this is that ultimately, if we know more about their well-being, it, it's going to impact their performance. So, you know, if you give us accurate readings and we can help you through this, you've got a better chance of staying in the first 15. You've got a better chance of maybe getting a place in the national team. You know, you've got a better chance of kind of performing better. Um, so that that's the driving motivation. And it's our system is much more kind of proactive than the current performance management systems, which are they're more focused on kind of the physical attribute side and they give you kind of a descriptive type of dashboard, whereas ours, we're taking that data, we're thinking through if a, you know, if a single player is, is doing pretty badly, for example, at the moment in terms of their well-being, why is that? Is it because of the weather? Is it because of the food? Is it some kind of management external factor? Um, or are there other factors in his personal life that we can help them with? 
Um, so, you know, we, if someone were to put a zero for three days, we would follow that up pretty quickly and try and reverse that and, and you know, improve their performance. How strong is the link to perform, performance well-being? So, um, at the moment, within sport, there's not, there's not been a huge amount of research, scientific research done, and that's partly why we've developed this tool, because we think there's a, there's a big gap in the market. Um, outside of sport, um, we're typically seeing kind of, you know, an improvement in well-being can lead to kind of 30 to 40% improvements in productivity. Um, and that's productivity kind of rated by a line manager, it's rated by the person, it could be number of tasks completed, so it could be number of emails they're managing to fire off in a day. Um, we also have very strong links between um, well-being and customer satisfaction. So people kind of at the cold face, at the customer service um, front face of the company, uh, we have much higher uh, customer satisfaction scores for them. So it's highly correlated. And actually, it's, you know, in our research, we're finding well-being is the single biggest driver of performance. So sleep's, sleep's been a, a big focus of research, you know, over the past few years and within sport and also kind of in general um, workplace settings, sleep is highly correlated with productivity. But when we look at well-being and we chuck well-being into the equation and the algorithms, sleep falls out. So what that tells us is that sleep's important because it impacts on well-being rather than productivity directly. And we get a lot of that. We get a lot of those kind of outcomes where we used to think something was important for productivity, but actually it's important because it goes through well-being and, and hence our, you know, our really kind of strong focus on well-being. What are you thinking about that, Topsy? So I saw you giving a little couple of little cheeky nods there. Yeah, sleep. I'm <laughs> in my head. I had, well, I was about to say the young boys, but probably a lot of the older boys too, sitting on the PlayStation till two, three in the morning, mm. trying to get their peace and quiet or whatever to have that time. And then, you know, you, you wonder why you're not training well the next day. And it's, oh, did you get a good night's sleep? Oh, I was watching films till two in the morning. I was on Netflix. And you're like, I think people, I mean, I'm a night owl anyway, but, you know, I, I tend to stay up late too, but I think people underestimate the importance of sleep quite a lot. And it's, it's an easy thing. Just go to bed, <laughs> go to bed, get your hours in. And actually over, I guess over a period of time, you will see a direct correlation to the improvements in how you feel, but ultimately performance as well. Yeah. What you, what's your sense around, like, from you and players that you were with around well-being? You know, so Dan's claim that well-being is, is critical to performance. You, have you seen it, experienced it kind of both ways? I guess so, yeah. I mean, I, the thing I probably would say is we probably didn't pay it. Say, if I think of the best periods that I had at Irish, we probably didn't pay well-being enough attention maybe we were doing it subconsciously i mean our thing was if we were really enjoying ourselves in terms of a training environment we were having a good time on the pitch a good time off the pitch that would correlate to how we would play how we would perform and ultimately in us winning more games and i think yeah my best times have been where that balance has been absolutely spot on um you know we've the squad has had a really good bond, which means, you know, the things about sharing and talking and that, I think we've been a bit more open to doing that. Really good blend of different characters, different embracing cultures. You know, we had a, quite a heavy island culture as well. Um, so you always come in, you look forward to coming into work, coming into the training ground. You knew you were surrounded by guys who just loved rugby, loved playing with a smile on their face, throwing the ball around. So 
think the culture then led into us performing. So actually maybe we were taking care of our well-being without actually knowing it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And then maybe I'll, I'll ping this to you, Dan, but some stuff I think sport and rugby does well is, well, the social connection can be really strong, done yeah. well. Actually, if it, when done badly, it can be terrible. So you, you might not feel belonging. Um, I think the diversity of, of people in rugby as well is, is really useful. And something else that I think is quite interesting, and um, when uh, Fletch did the uh, podcast with Billy recently, he spoke a lot about like his faith. And so um, this is something I'm definitely curious as well, but lots of the island, uh, you know, the Pacific Island players, and you, you would have had a reasonable contingent, um, would have, are actually quite calming in a group. Now, maybe not so on the night out, but certainly during the week and the, the day-to-day, I actually think they do a real good job in teams. And I, obviously I live in Bristol and I notice people like John Afoa and Charles Piertau and the impact those guys have on the young players is significant as well. I mean, what are you, what are you thinking as we start unpacking that stuff, Dan? What's yeah. the science say? <laughs> so the, the, um, the, the socialization bit, I think, is a massive one in sport and, and you know, you need to get it right. It's interesting you mentioned kind of religion and um, that's a, that's a massive driver of all of the you know well-being metrics that we look at um, and other types of kind of mindfulness meditation exercises as well have been proven to be really useful so all of that is is really chiming well I think with with the research that we've done and the and the kind of you know uh, the, the findings that we've seen in the literature the other really big one aside from performance is actually around injury proneness so well-being is a really big driver of, of kind of reducing injury proneness but also once someone's injured um getting that um kind of recovery time down again well-being is, is a really key element there and kind of just going back to what Topsy was saying um well-being is really kind of like this sponge that holds everything together so it drives performance and in, and injury reductions in and of itself but as performance improves and let's say you have a better social connection and that kind of thing that all feeds back into well-being again and you get this virtuous circle and then the well-being you know you've got this well-being kick again and then you've got the, the productivity and the performance kick which then feeds back into well-being so if you can get it right as a club or an organization or, or a company you've got this really nice virtuous circle that works around and you have a productive workforce that's very social that's altruistic that's open to you know another thing actually is is well-being as a big driver of being open to diversity in different cultures so we see reductions in racism and things like that, but with, you know, with people with higher levels of well-being. So another one in terms of diversity in the workplace is, is another key element and creativity and problem solving and that kind of thing. So I think, you know, what we really want to do is help organizations and sports clubs to develop that kind of ongoing and, you know, enduring virtuous circle around well-being and performance. Nice. And I'm, <clears throat> and I'm, I'm going to ask Topsy, did you ever have a, like that Sunday evening feeling of I don't want to go to work tomorrow? Oh, did I? Um, <clears throat> I don't know. To be honest, if if I thinking of off the top of my head now, I'd say there probably would have been a few occasions, maybe a few, not too many. Yeah, that's good. Because, like I say, for the most part, I I completely enjoyed what I did, and was always Irish has always been a really great club for me. Um, but yeah, I would say there would probably have been a handful of occasions. I mean, again, sixteen years is a long time where I would have been like. Mm, don't really players. fancy it tomorrow. <clears throat> Other, Other players, yeah, I'd I'd say, 
um, because just even just as Dan was talking there, I mean, the big kind of two red flags, for want of a better word, are non-selection and injury, especially long-term injury. So if you're in one of those two places, you're probably going to be less inclined to want to go to training because you're of the mindset, right, okay, I'm not playing for three, four, five, six months or the team's picked, I've got no chance of playing. It's a weekend, they're off the back of a win. The team's not changing, so I'm holding a tackle bag for another week. I know that. And, you know, I've, I've been in that situation, I've been when you're out of the team, that is one of the toughest places. You're just training. You think, right, I'm not going to play a game for four, six, four to six weeks. What am I doing here? <laughs> like, you know, I'd rather be at home doing something else. So that they would be the occasions probably where you're like, right, here we go. It's another day, another training day coming. Fletch speaks about if I could measure one thing, it would be that Sunday evening feeling. And I'm going to come to you in a second, Dan, because I saw you nod. And just a couple of, I guess, and and this is my question, Dan, is 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 about how do we? So how are you seeing this working? Is it iterative? Are you working in conjunction with coaches? And if I just give you a couple of stories to probably bring it to life, so I spoke to a young Premiership rugby player this week, and he said. Um, if I'm not in the 15, the coaches don't speak to me. So that's really typical. Coaches focus on the 15 and they're not possibly not that aware of the fact that maybe 16 to 23 or 23 plus need more of their time. And the other one is in a football environment where they separate all the injured players because they say, oh, they would have a, a detrimental impact on the rest of the team. I'm thinking they need the rest of the team more than anyone else. So there'd probably be some practices that go on that, you know, that maybe you'll start to uncover, Dan. And I guess my question, therefore, is so how do you see it? Some some people fill out some stuff, and as probably as Topsy said, like the proofs in the pudding, like do they do anything about it? And I guess how are you envisaging this, you know, relationship with Quinns or other football clubs you work with? Do you, do you see it as a iterative process where everyone learns along the way? Yeah, so um, at our surveys, those kind of daily or frequent surveys will start to build up a really granular picture of the player, um, how they're feeling and how they're, how they're performing um, each and every day. And um, we, we, we then have two areas where we use that data. The first is we can correlate that back statistically to what's happening at the club. So if a player's injured and they are in an isolated group with other injured players, we can actually see whether that's impacting on their well-being and, and performance. We could actually see whether it's impacting on the well-being of the non-injured players as well, not being able to train and see the, the injured players. Um, you know, we can look at coaching practice, management style. We can look at the number of times that a, you know, a, a coach is talking to a player. Does that improve well-being? My, my assumption, you know, given the literature, would be that, yes, it should impact on well-being. Feedback is a really big part of people's well-being um, and we can just look at other things like climate temperature um, the facilities on site traveling to the you know to the training even things even small things like you know is there enough car parking space at the training ground and that kind of thing all of this kind of stuff um, you know would start to filter through into the data and um, so we can give the clubs kind of advice at that kind of you know organizational level the other nice bit of the system is that we then provide around that Kind of a support system of, of programs to to further improve well-being um, and these are they're basically two ways that we do that the first is kind of what we call the mindset type of program so they are getting more into kind of mindset mindfulness that kind of you know 
helping players think a little bit about the way they think about a match or themselves. So it's trying to cognitively change how they think a little bit. The other one is kind of moving away completely from that. And it's just what we call intentional activities. So we're not trying to change mindset. We just get players to do certain things, maybe in the evening or once a week. Um, and as an example of that, one of the most powerful ones that we use at the moment is something called the gratitude journal. So we'd ask a player on a Sunday evening um, to list five things that they are appreciative for or, gra or grateful for over the past week. And that could be anything just like, you know, good family relationships, um, nice meals, you know, trained well, whatever the five things are. Um, and we just ask them to keep, you know, write down a piece of paper and remind themselves of that every, you know, every morning before they go into work. Um, and, and that, you know, that's one of the biggest kind of interventions in terms of well-being impact that we've seen. So, um, you know, we can see if players do that for a couple of weeks, we can see their well-being increasing for, for you know, almost six months. So there's long-term impact. Um, we've also started to look at some of the, um, we've run a few um, kind of trials in this area and we're seeing that it's quite highly correlated with executive function as well. So reaction times and things like that, uh, you know, writing a gratitude letter um, could be, you know, in, it seems quite illogical, but it, it looks like it's a driver of things like reaction times as well, all through kind of players' well-being. Um, so there's a lot, lot of support there. And I think just going back to what Topsy was saying a moment ago, it was interesting about kind of you know, you have those ups and downs and there might be the odd evening where you don't want to go into training. Um, what we don't want to do is completely eliminate any type of negative emotion because we know negative emotion really doesn't show up in the literature much as a big driver of performance. It's, it's how much positive emotion you have. So it looks like you need a little bit of negative emotion and you need a lot of positive emotion. Those are the guys that are going to perform the most. So we're fine with players having a bit of a step back, feeling a bit down, feeling maybe not wanting to go into training all of the time, that's absolutely fine. We don't need to eliminate that. But what we want to do is improve the areas where there should be positive emotions, you know, things like your engagement with your managers, what the facilities are like and that kind of thing. Um, so we're looking at that positive side more than the negative side. Nice. And by the way, Topsy never struggled. He had the best car parking space. <laughs> oh, right the front. Always. Always. <laughs> car parking space. Um, what what interventions did you experience around this topsy over your career what's the what's the stuff that you felt had impact for you and for you and then what's the things that you thought yeah that that didn't work so well with the game um well i mean off what we've just spoken about i mean the big thing is i guess when we tried these wellness surveys it was it just it wasn't done well because it wasn't followed through it wasn't a proper system it didn't last very long i think you know we, we did it maybe for one season and then it was gone so i think with things like that they have to be consistent uh what's worked for me is i guess again maybe because i've been at the one club the whole time i've always had the relationship with people there people coming through coaches to be able to flag anything that came up um in fairness to him, like De Declan Kidney, since he, the couple of years I spent with him, he's actually, maybe from his school background, he's very good at checking in and asking about everything you're doing away from the pitch, not just what's happening on training. You know, he wants to know, are you family? How's things at home? Are you studying? What's going on? And I think things like that, again, I I've been able to benefit from that through the whole of my career because I think I've always had those relationships, both with players and with coaches. Um, I imagine for a lot of people, it's not that. 
um, it, it's a lot different and I guess they just don't feel comfortable enough to kind of share things that have nothing to do with training or playing you know if it's something away from rugby you probably feel that you can't share it or you don't want to share it because again you, you don't want anything to detract from you trying to get in a team um, I just know for me like I said that's probably the one thing that helped you know I was able to again for majority of it come into training with a smile on my face wanting to be there because I was in an environment where I was really really comfortable and you know happy to share as and when I needed to what would be your advice to coaches around you know if if you could say look here's some stuff that will be useful to 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 consider um i'd probably say just be a bit more aware that it's a bit weird saying it for a professional rugby environment especially but there's other stuff going on and obviously everybody's job in that building is to win rugby matches but there are so many parts to making that happen and one of them is just how your players are getting on how they're interacting probably how they are when you don't see them is the biggest one you want them to come in and do a job for you there's a lot of things that go into that as well they need to be in the best place possible so as much as once they leave the club maybe you think they're not your responsibility there's no harm in just making sure you're aware of what's going on outside of the training building Nice. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting for you, isn't it? Because you've actually been coached by <clears throat> lots of your peers, so Dodge and Deck and uh, Nick and people like that, who are who are also great people. So you've probably had some some pretty good experiences around this as well. Yeah, and like that, that's probably <clears throat> been testament to maybe why my experience has been better. It's the people that come through. You know, I think um, so. When I was first breaking into the team, Bob Casey was captain. Bob was brilliant. Like, you know, he would really go out of his way to kind of check in on people and see how they were doing and he, he took real ownership for the whole team which helped um, and then I guess as I became more of a senior player you know I guess you have a bit more of a close relationship with the coaches because they kind of use you to feedback what's happening what's happening on the ground level with the players is there anything that we need to know so you're able to go straight in and have those conversations and Again, you know, talk about those guys dodging that. You know, when they became the coaches, it's like we're very like-minded, so we can be quite direct with each other. Right, this is working, this isn't working, this needs changing, because ultimately, our common goal is success on the pitch and winning. Nice no, couple of things there for you, Dan. One, that kind of sense of autonomy. So, sounds a bit like uh, Topsy had ability to to have conversations with coaches and say what wasn't working. So, let them pick that. And the other thing that I'm curious about is the is the playing group. So I guess probably my language has gone, it's coaches and it's players. But actually you're talking about people like Big Bob Casey um, who were within the playing group but actually probably acted like a, a coach, really. Um, yeah. <clears throat> can we unpick that stuff and its, its impact and I guess how it fits into your stuff? Yeah. Um, so the stuff around autonomy that, you know... Um, that's a that's a massive driver. Autonomy, um, clear communications, feedback, uh, having some direction in, in well, understanding the organisational goals um, or the club's goals, and then uh, and having some kind of autonomy and, and role in delivering all of that are, are really key. And I'm, I'm you know that's prevalent within sport, but also you know in other workplaces as well. So absolutely agree with that. Um, 
I think you know there's there's a risk that there are there'll be some players that aren't even if they they have that kind of liberty to be autonomous they may not be able to step forward and do that and you know there may be other things we'd need to support them with in terms of that um, and then yeah the players and the coaches I think um, that the are really there's a couple of really interesting differentiators between kind of what we're doing and I think what's generally there in the performance stuff at the moment and the first one um, is around the fact that we actually collect data on coaches as well as players so there's there's massive dynamics in well-being so my if I'm sitting next to you in a in a session or something like that my well-being is going to impact on your well-being regardless of how you felt that morning when you came in uh, so we want to understand a little bit more how the the well-being of the coaches, the sports staff, the physios, etc., is impacting on the on the first team, um, and you know we may see that some players are working a little bit more as coaches within that and, and having a beneficial effect. And um, the other one is we've mentioned this kind of issue around wellness quite a lot, and I know the guys at Quinns do a lot of these wellness surveys. They're kind of thirty seconds in the morning, um, and our explorations with a lot of clubs, so Barcelona, for example, do very similar things to what Quinns doing at the moment in terms of soreness questions, I think fatigue, um, and maybe one mood question. What we want to do is shift that dial and really move away from that a little bit and really think about life as a whole. So we're asking much more questions about how is your whole life overall? How is your family life? Um, you know, how is your leisure time? All of that type of stuff. Um, and that just gives us a much bigger view, which would allow, which gives a lot more different information to coaches. Um, and it's really that kind of level of well-being rather than stuff like soreness, which is the you know, which is the biggest driver of performance. It's going to be the thing that reflects most um, in people's training and performance. Nice. Did the coaches do the wellbeing surveys when you did them topsy? <laughs> I'm going to say definitely not. <laughs> uh, definitely just, uh, not. I, I wanted to jump onto the coaches, and it's interesting, and my segue into this is in 2009, or I think it was, Nigel Redmond did this with us actually as coaches, and he just did it with the coaches. So actually just, you know, what three words describe how you feel today type of stuff. And we then have a discussion about it and we would we would look at the impact we then had on the players, which was often significant. Um, if Ben Ryan was uh, tired and uh, jet lagged, it was he wasn't quite the, the same Ben Ryan he normally was. So uh, how do you see it working with the, with the, I mean, well, actually it's going to you first, Topsy. I mean, I'm, I think you brought this to life well anyway. I mean, I'm going to actually, so... Uh, Impact of uh, so impact of the coaches on the playing group. What percentage of do you think they are responsible for? I'd say forty, sixty. So they are they are 40%. they're forty percent responsible. Yeah, I think it's really big. <clears throat> now, not sure. Uh, Dan might have some numbers on it, but. How do you see this? So from a coaching point of view, how do you see this working? Um, so there's two elements. The, the coaches obviously get a lot of feedback, granular data on the well-being of their players and, and how they can shift that and improve it. Um, the other one is we know, you know a heap of kind of success factors that are related back to your manager. So whatever profession you're working in, the higher... The, when you look at the senior levels, the higher the level of well-being amongst those senior group of people, whether they are CEOs or whether they're managers within a within the sports setting, the higher the levels of well-being and performance of the people that are that are kind of sitting underneath them, whether that's players or kind of you know junior staff and that kind of thing. And um, so I think we will start to see over time that the managers, the well-being and how a manager feels or a coach feels, 
is just as important as how the players feel in terms of their preparation, in terms of their performance, etc. And um, that you know there are figures out there. They are they're pretty substantial. We're talking kind of probably around double digit percentage point you know correlations between um, kind of how a manager feels or how a coach feels and how the players or their or their staff feels as well. So it's an intricate part of what we look at, um, and and I think it's absolutely key going forward. How do people deal with it? So um, have you? kind of held the mirror up to some people on, around this already so senior leaders people in sport coaches what's are they are they like oh my days type stuff or are they like oh yeah, yeah i know that i'm just grumpy type stuff yeah so some of it is um very you know the findings we get are, are, are quite intuitive a lot of the time which is which is good because um it, it's it's telling us that you know it, it's kind of stuff that we know as humans is is impactful anyway but you know we would typically put together a report or a presentation for these organizations showing in a quantitative way how all of this stuff links together whether it's managers well-being and, and staff well-being or whether it's drivers of well-being and performance um, and we do provide advice on how you might be able to improve that so you know increase the frequency of contact with your manager or coach or reduce the frequency if there's too much um, and that kind of thing and the organizations we work with in the past have generally been very receptive around that and, and started to change their practices in there so um yeah i think you know there's, there's plenty of room for improvement um, and there'll be lots of things that clubs don't know that they're doing that it's actually having a bit of a detrimental impact and they're quite easy fixes to to kind of change which should which could just be kind of start time and end time of, of training sessions might be one for example uh when you Topsy have to nodding topsy's nodding at that one he's thinking yeah mm -hmm. sure. uh, other ones yeah, other ones might be negative feedback, right? After a heavy defeat, you, you're going to have to do that feedback and you're going to have to critically assess what, what went wrong. But when do you actually do that? Do you do that kind of within an hour of the defeat or do you let you leave it for 24 hours? You know, those things, we don't know that in sport at the moment, but this kind of tool will help us to kind of understand that in more detail. What are you thinking about those two points, Topsy? Uh, timing of training sessions, duration, um, timing of feedback, um, yeah yeah again memories flooding back i mean yeah the, the training day was one that always kind of chopped and changed i mean I remember at the start early on we'd be in like eight or four or five and actually if you think for the amount of time you're training i know it's not a normal job do you need to be in for that long like can we be more efficient with our time and i think it definitely got a lot better i mean talk about you know nick kennedy paul and that crew they were very big on it's short it's sharp we get in, we work hard, we work efficiently, we leave, plenty of rest time in between so that come game day, everybody is at optimum levels ready to perform. Um, the meeting, the, the feedback one is always hard, especially after a defeat because you know, like, you know, you, your typical, your video nasty is coming. And I guess, you know, talking about the coaches and that and how they deal with it. I mean, they, everybody knows that's an uncomfortable meeting, but I guess there's, better ways of doing it you know and you know i've been in meetings where sometimes players get hung out to dry sometimes it's actually more of a learning discussion and, and i guess you have to find the balance depending on the makeup of your squad and i guess as a coach how you feel you'll get the best response from that meeting and so i've, I've sat in all of them sat in the nice the good guy ones sat in the hairdryer ones where you're like okay right and then you know that session afterwards you're gonna you're in for it um but that, yeah that that is quite a tough balance I, I don't know what the best way forward from that is i guess ultimately you just 
got to be flexible in how you approach it, gauge the mood. I mean, if your team is completely down anyway, do you need to heap on top of it? Or actually, is it important that you do it in that moment so the point is crystal clear so you can learn from it? Nice. Yeah. And Dan, you're, you're suggesting you're going to try and capture some data around all of this stuff and try and help everyone make some better sense of impact of this on performance. That's right, yeah. The, the data is granular enough that we can pick up um, the impacts of those types of things. And, um, you know, there's, there, there would be questions initially I have around, you know, do you do that when everyone is feeling actually not too bad on that morning or something like that, which might be you're having to wait a couple of days to do it. Um, there, are, there are such minor things, if we get into the real kind of science around it, that we've seen kind of the behavioral science literature um, you know, on the timing of, of making decisions and feedback, for example. So, you know, there's a famous study a while ago that looked at uh, court cases and, 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 um, and kind of the result of, 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 the, of the case. Um, and for a, for a similar type of crime and set of circumstances, we found that the sentencing was a lot harsher if the judge was making that sentence before lunch than compared to after lunch. Right. So there, there, you know, there are very simple things about how actually shifting it around during the day might have an impact. You know, should we do it first thing? Do we do it? Do we avoid lunch? Because, you know, people are a bit touchy. They're wanting to make decisions quickly. Do we do it after lunch? Do we do it at the end of the day? There are, you know, that's just one of a, a million questions I think I'd have about, you know, what's the best way of providing feedback? What's the best way of motivating people? Um, and, you know, the data hopefully will, will start to track that and show that over time. Nice. I, um, <clears throat> I'm going to dig into your world, your new world now, Topsy, a little bit. One of the things you also triggered me on was we had Steve Black on uh, on the webinar on Friday, and <clears throat> Blackie said, um, John Wilkinson, when he chatted to him, he started off and he was just training too hard. He said, you need to be the best wrestler in the world if you want to be the best player in the world, which I thought was a good way of looking at it. Some stuff I wrote down from my experiences as well was <clears throat> selection and how it was done. So there was a time at Rotherham where they, they waited till we all went and they put it on the wall yeah. and then someone would go back and then, so Charlie Harrison would ring me and tell me I wasn't playing, which was a bit weird. And then it just got me thinking as well for coaches <clears throat> and I do a bit of stuff in business and actually someone I'm working with has changed this. That actually if you have your conversations in the morning and actually people don't fill in the blanks all day, oh my God, I'm panicking about stuff, what's going, you know, and we often, you know, we have this kind of inbuilt negativity bias just to prevent it from, you know, us from getting killed by a saber-toothed tiger. Um, but actually just shifting some of those conversations to early in the day would make big impact on players in my experience. And then the other one was, and maybe it's one for you, Top, so you, you definitely played more matches than me, but like the match day stuff, like what was helpful on a match day and what was less helpful in your experience? Well, I mean, me personally, I, I liked my match day to be to be very relaxed. Um, you know, you know, you've done the work in the build up. And hey, I can't imagine that. <laughs> what gave it away? Um, yeah, because I mean, again, I, I just like to be in a really good headspace, a real, you know, real relaxed, knowing that right, okay, you turn up. I like music pre-game. You know, I I like to kind of do my own thing. I know some guys are like headphones in super serious leave me alone i've got to do this x y and z in a specific order so i'm ready i'd say i was probably the opposite i had a few things that i would like to do but ultimately very very relaxed um 
And I think, I think as long as the week had gone well, I think that was probably a big one for me. If the week had gone really well, then game day was fine. It's like, right, okay, I'm ready to go now. I've got nothing on my mind, no concerns, no niggling injuries, no, oh, we didn't do this or we didn't do that. I think I'm, it just gets to the game day. And I'm excited. I'm ready to go out there and play. And I think that that's probably the big one and one that helped me. Um, I say, game day is why you do it. You, yeah, well, that's, have you looked at any stuff around match day and any, any different experiences on match day, Dan? Um, so, yeah, there's this, again, uh, lacking in the literature at the moment, very few studies in sports. So it's, you know, it's something which, which we'd want to do with our, with our app. Um, you know, managing pressure is a big one um, in, in the literature more broadly. Um, and, you know, there's, there's ways of doing that in a mindset kind of cognitive way through kind of, you know, psych, psychological type of interventions, that kind of thing. Um, you know, there are other ways that, that we could work on it, you know, going back to kind of those interventions we were thinking about around um, the, the gratitude survey, you know, we've got a, a heap of interventions like that. Other, other types of interventions could be kind of visualization exercises. So visualizing your best possible self, even if you're a million miles away from that and you never achieve it. Um, just that process itself is really helpful. So, you know, we would, we would start to look with the players that we work with around those types of smaller interventions, potentially on match days, potentially during the match, that kind of thing, um, and, and just see if there's something useful. Because I know players are very kind of super, superstitious bunch of guys, and, you know, uh, we don't need to always have that. There could be other types of interventions that are, uh, that are important, I think. <clears throat> nice. The visualisations interesting one. Obviously, did you ever do visualisation? Yeah, yeah, lots of it. Without probably knowing it was a, a technique, I mean, I would always play out like different scenarios, um, especially on the way to the game as well. And probably in, in the build-up, you know, you're, I guess for me, you know, you, you're thinking about scoring tries or running certain moves and how you're going to execute. And yeah, you, you would picture it a lot because and I guess maybe from previous experiences where it's happened before and you've got that feedback already, yeah. It's like, yeah, you're picturing, right, how is this going to play? How do you want it to play out once those opportunities arise in the game? Like, yeah, that was probably something I, I did a lot of, I would say, now I think about it. Because, again, I guess between team run on, say, on a normal week, team run on a Friday, say 10 o'clock to kick off Saturday, 3 o'clock, that's your last session. So a lot of time in there. And I actually know some teams finish on the Thursday, have the Friday off, and then play on the Saturday. I've done both of those. So a lot of time in between that period to, well, I guess, think about the game, think about your performance, how, how you want certain things to go, and, yeah, how you want it to play out. Nice. No, one of the things that uh, recently that I learned was that, so Peter Walton used to do visualisation with the forwards with England A-teams, and, Marcus Smith used to, who's a Quinns down, used to go into the meetings and, and only recently Marcus said, ah, oh, I really miss the visualisations with Waltz. Yeah, yeah. I was like, mate, you were talking about scrums and stuff. He was like, I loved it. It got me really like amped for the game. Like I'm all in type stuff. And <clears throat> yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? That once again, there's something that probably I didn't do that much in my career and might have, might have benefited me. I'm going to just touch quickly, Topsy, what's the, why do you think the, the the young players that I speak to say you're a good mentor for them? What's the stuff that you feel like you're doing? <laughs> oh, I need to blow up my own bubble. Um, I, I guess the biggest thing I, that maybe they just felt that I was always approachable. Like maybe they saw 
a good pathway in the game based on how I'd done it, but also that if they ever needed anything, that they could come to me and I would be willing to, whether it was doing something on the pitch or just sitting and having a chat, seeing how they were doing, like, you know, what's going on, take taking an interest in what they're doing. Um, and maybe less of that, I'm first team, I'm topsy, you don't talk to me. Actually, no, I'm just topsy. Like, you sit with me, come have lunch, come have a beer with me. Like, it doesn't matter. Um, there's me now, making myself feel good, <laughs> feel good about myself. Um, but I, I guess that, that would be it. You know, I, you know, I probably touched on it earlier. I think one of the reasons, I guess, why I've been at Irish my whole career and stayed and enjoyed it is I've always had great relationships with anybody who's come in um and i guess maybe that's rubbing off on, on people and they're having reciprocating towards me nice one dan i'm gonna and last question for you what does the what does the science say about uh mentors and kind of critical friends or people that help you make sense of stuff uh so we find that there, there are dual impacts there so for the uh, mentee the person being mentored um, there are there are really significant benefits in terms of their mental health, well-being, and and um, resilience, and that will kind of uh, you know filter out into their performance as well. Um, often that is just because they can make connections to things that um, we know drive well-being. So what you know, well-being is highly correlated, as I was saying, with kind of the the organisation's objectives and understanding how they fit in. And having that mentor is one aspect of that. When you're kind of new and a little bit lost or or young in the ranks or something like that. The mentor can really help you around that, um, and and the, and you know you you learn valuable skills as well, which is another key component. And then on the flip side, for the for the mentor themselves, um, there are huge benefits there as well. There's you know there's the passing on of the skills. Kind of altruism is a big driver of well-being, whether that's passing on of skills, whether it's giving time, whether it's giving money, whatever setting we're in, um, it's another big driver. So you know I, I can see how mentoring would would do that because it's a it's a voluntary exchange of your time and, and support for someone else. Um, and also, you know, having someone that listens and, and listening to people, you're just connecting, you, you know, you're increasing that social connection, which is a big driver. Um, so, you know, I, I would agree with all of that. I can see how being a mentor and being mentee is, you know, or being mentored is, is, is really important for a player's development, their well-being and performance. Nice, lads. It's been a pleasure. Jamie Williams has kind of challenged me to go what's my one thing my biggest thing that I that I think I'm going to explore based upon what you spoke about today is just that time away from the from the training ground so actually what you said topsy around like there's a lot of stuff that goes into performance and some of it happens before you drive in the car park and the other what you said Dan was some of the things like spending time with your kids yeah. Drink, drinking probably not a good example but but actually the things you could be doing away from that will impact upon when you are there so actually perhaps even directing some people towards some stuff actually currently on my whiteboard or blackboard downstairs i've actually got a list of things that i've committed to doing that i know help me with my well-being so yeah. um it's um it's been really helpful for me that's great and i think the last thing i'd say just on that rusty would be uh, that, that purposeful activities that give you purpose and the sense of worthwhileness um, are just as important, actually, if not more important than pleasurable activities for performance. So, you know, we wouldn't make this link or this assumption, but, you know, learning a second language or learning how to cook um, a new recipe or something like that, that kind of sense of purpose or helping your kid with your homework 
that might filter out onto your performance on the pitch the following day or in training. You know, it, the links are that strong we've seen in other areas. So um, don't always think about kind of you've got to go out and enjoy yourself. That there's other ways that you can improve your performance and your well-being, and that that's through these kind of structured, purposeful activities as well. So I think your goal setting is, it sounds like a great idea. I'm sure you know that that will have reap benefits for you. I need to add um, purposeful uh, homeschooling onto it as well because uh, at the moment I'm not enjoying it. <laughs> uh, mine have gone back to school, so it's been taken care of. Look, guys, it's been awesome. It's been great to chat. I've written loads of s stuff that's useful for me as well. If people want to reach out and find either of you for, for any reason in the world, uh, what's the best way? Uh, top C where can people find you king of twitter yeah i'm all over social media twitter instagram at topsy underscore ojo beautiful dan where 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 can people find you are you in the twitter sphere we are so we're um at underscore symmetrica that's s-i-m-e-t-r-i-c-a um or you can go through to our website symmetrica .co.uk. Uh, you can see all of the work that we do there in the wellbeing space and and there's a there's a contact form if you want to get in touch with us Lads, it's been awesome. Have a brilliant day. Lots of purposeful activity. Lots of stuff that's going to get us up and ready to go. Um, appreciate your time. Catch you later. Thanks. Cheers, Rusty. Thanks. Thanks.